Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. It is Friday, and uh, we have come to call that opposite day here on Detroit Today, a day when we bring in somebody who sees the world through a slightly different lens than I do, and they come in here and tell me how wrong I am about all of the things that we talk about all week. Sheikha Dalmia of the Reason Foundation is here this week to play that role, and we'll get to her in just a second. Uh, we'll also talk a little later to Derek Palacio, who's the author of a book called The Mortifications. It was one of the New York Times best books of 2016. We're going to talk to him about that book and about his appearance soon at the Midwest Literary Walk in Chelsea. So you want to stay tuned to that as well. Also, remember that if you are just pulling up to work, about to get out of the car, or you've just got something else that you need to do in this hour, you don't have to miss out on all of the insight and fun here on Detroit Today. You can download our podcast. Just go to iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Download and subscribe, and you can listen to Detroit Today whenever and wherever you choose. Uh, All right, up front, uh, Bill O'Reilly, a longtime host of a news show on Fox News, was let go this week uh, after years, really, of allegations about his behavior off camera, his behavior toward women. Several sponsors of the show had decided that they were no longer going to put their money behind his content and Fox News decided that he should leave. Was this the right decision? Was this the right way that this kind of decision should have been made? Or should Fox have come down on O'Reilly much sooner for what he was doing and not waited until there was a money question on the line to make that decision. Sheikha Dalmia is a senior analyst with the Reason Foundation, a writer for Reason Magazine, and she joins us frequently to talk about uh, politics and policy on a number of issues. I've got her here in the studio today to play the opposite of Stephen Henderson, uh, to sit here and talk about things from a different point of view. Sheikha, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. So I wanted to start with this Bill O'Reilly issue because uh, actually it's something we sort of agree on, that uh, Bill O'Reilly was someone who probably should not have sat in the chair that he had for as long as he did. You, however, think that this is sort of an exercise in sort of uh, the way that the free market is supposed to work. In other words, that because his sponsors got tired of him and were upset with his behavior, uh, that he was like, oh, and that that's the way this is supposed to work. Yeah. So, you know, if you contrast what happened to Donald Trump and what happened to Bill O'Reilly, I think the the parallel becomes quite clear. Donald Trump was, you know, allegations of sexual harassment to the point of assault where we had him on tape and the whole world heard it. And yet he got elected the president of the most powerful country on the planet. Bill O'Reilly, on the other hand, eventually did get booted. Now, at first blush, it seems like, you know, Bill O'Reilly, you know, the market failed because after all, Fox uh, News had known about these allegations for a long time. It had paid, uh, what, $13 million to, you know, several women, two of them actually just last year, uh, to drop their allegations of sexual uh, harassment by Bill O'Reilly. 
And yet, actually, earlier this year, they renewed his contract ahead of schedule, his $18 million contract ahead of schedule. And it was only a few weeks ago after the New York Times did an expose of all the women's and all the allegations that Fox News actually knew about that finally the pressure started uh, building up uh, to eject him. And, uh, you know, and again, this also contrasts with the way Roger Isles was treated last year, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he is the CEO, in a sense, who made Fox News the what he has. There were allegations against him as well. And uh, he was unceremoniously dismissed by the Fox management without any of this outside pressure. Yes. So at first blush, it seems that, you know, there is some reason to believe there's market failure over here, that Fox management didn't act. Bill O'Reilly actually didn't lose any reader, a viewership of his. Yeah. His viewers were, you know, solidly loyal behind him, even though these allegations were well known. Uh, on the other hand, what I would argue is what this also shows is that there are multiple pressure points in a marketplace. There isn't just one. So when the first two lines of defense failed, you know, the advertiser <laughs> line of defense came, you know, came through. Right. And uh, now, uh, you know, the advertisers too themselves were not working, uh, you know, of their own free will. A lot of these companies they, you know, he, he's he got several million viewers and they are happy to get that market. And so they were not acting of their own accord too. Yeah. They were acting because they were pressure from feminist organizations sure. on them. So my point only is that the market is a very complicated mechanism. There are multiple pressure points and you know, if one doesn't work, you can always resort to another. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess I wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, my my objection, I think, is to the idea that the market is the only sort of context in which we ought to think of these things. I mean, there is a moral issue with what uh, Bill O'Reilly was doing. There is a legal issue with what he was doing, which, of course, is being handled and was handled by the courts and these settlements that he that he paid out. And in fact. I would argue that the reason we need government to deal with these things is precisely because the market and the courts often uh, often fail us. Uh, and and here um, here you've got an example of the market. Actually, I I think I think it is a pretty spectacular failure in the sense that Bill O'Reilly has been on the air for a really long time. Uh, popularity is what kept him on the air, and that is what in the market matters more, I guess, than anything other than money. But then there is this this question of, you know, the, the people who were victims of this and uh, the justice that they were that they were due. Uh, the reason that we have government really is to be able to decide collectively how that is supposed to work to protect certain classes of people from others. And here, uh, that didn't happen quite the way that I think uh, a lot of people would imagine it should. Well, but I mean, it did. It's not like the government d- didn't play any role, right? The government did because these women, they sued. They were able in, to sue. Sue, and you know, and there are laws against sexual harassment and these women were able to sue and they got, you know, th- uh, something like $13 million. And uh, so the victims in this case were compensated. That's you know, that is the part that the government played was in bringing justice to the victims. Sure. For 
when we are talking about the moral accountability, I mean, I am not in favor of the government actually telling the, you know, Fox News management, you've got to get rid of Bill O'Reilly. I mean, that would be, you know, neither you nor I would agree to that, right? I mean, that would be a huge violation of of a free First Amendment and free speech and all kinds of things. And so then the question is, are there any other social mechanisms that we can count on? And all I am saying is, that, you know, simple moral outrage is not enough, that, you know, you have to monetize that moral outrage, and the market gives you many mechanisms to do so. To do that, yeah. All right, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Sheikha Dalmia. She is a senior analyst with the Reason Foundation, a writer for Reason Magazine. We are talking about the week's news. Uh, uh, Usually on Fridays here, we try to bring in somebody who sees things a little differently, than I do. She is in that seat today. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. What do you think about Bill O'Reilly's exit from Fox News? What do you think about the timing of that exit? What do you think about the cause of that exit? The fact that it was a monetary decision on the fa- on the part of Fox News that ultimately pushed Bill O'Reilly out of the chair that he's occupied for several years. Is that the way this ought to work? Or should Fox have been thinking a little more about uh, the morality of his behavior, about the victims that uh, that were uh, that were accosted by him? Are those things that should be motivating business behavior as much as profit or popularity in the case of a television station? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. Also, talk a little to us about what you think about this brand of commentary. Think about the things that Bill O'Reilly said over the years, the kinds of outlandish uh, accusations he uh, made from time to time, the kinds of uh, offensive things that he said to people in, in public office or sometimes private citizens. Is that a sign of uh, of the deterioration of the sort of commentary estate in this uh, in this country, uh, or is it just something that we've always had around for a long time, and maybe it's a little more garish because we have twenty four hour news cycles on television and on the internet and things like that? Uh, I'm curious what you think about someone like Bill O'Reilly. What place does he occupy uh, in our culture? Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number to join the conversation. You can also go to the WDET. Facebook page and put your comments there. Uh, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we will work your comments into the conversation. Uh, Sheikha, I'll start with you on this question of uh, the kind of commentary that uh, Bill O'Reilly offered. You're, you're a, a columnist, uh, someone who, who shares opinions based on reporting and insight uh, with lots of people. I am also in that role. Uh, not only here at the radio station, but also on uh, in the newspaper. Uh, I, I do feel like we are in a different age of commentary. I think it, it means something different now. There is, if anything, I feel more responsibility. I guess as a as a columnist uh, to 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 represent more of how I come to the to the conclusions that I come to, uh, things like that. Uh, but but someone like Bill O'Reilly really. Uh, exists at the opposite end of the spectrum, I feel, uh, from most of us. And for for consumers, for people who read us or watch us, it's really difficult, I think, to discern the difference. I mean, I, I hear people say, well, you're just 
You're just like someone like Bill O'Reilly. You're just on the left side of the spectrum instead of the right side of the spectrum, instead of looking at it from a, a standpoint of how we do our jobs. Uh, you know, personally, uh, I've never been a fan of uh, Bill O'Reilly's uh, style of uh, commentary. I don't think it's actually commentary. He himself describes himself as bloviating, and I think that's rather accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's demagoguery for the most part, right? I mean, guests on his show don't even get to finish uh, their sentences. They are, <laughs> you know, they are merely agitprop for whatever he wants to say, right? right? And so, I mean, that whole brand of journalism I've never been a fan of, but let me just say he's not actually the most extreme example not of that, by far. right? I mean, now you have, I mean, Rush Limbaugh inaug inaugurated it on radio much before he came uh, on the scene. Mm -hmm. And now you have on the right active conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones. Um, who are completely irresponsible, right? I mean, and then you have on the left, a late night comedy has been getting in some ways nastier and nastier. I mean, and it is... Do you think that's the same thing? It, it is and it isn't. I mean, look, you have to look at it from the point of the view of their targets, right? I mean, and the Atlantic actually had a really, really good piece uh, just this week, and I forget the name of the author, but, you know, it was a piece about has late night comedy led to the rise of Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. And the, what the piece was essentially saying was that, um, you know, people like Samantha Bee, uh, there was, they used, there is this tacit rule in journalism that you and I follow that we will not pick on people who are smaller than ourselves, yeah. right? And Samantha B violates that <laughs> left and right. I she mean, really does. I mean, and uh, and P and liberals laugh at that, right? I mean, and you know, it is. I mean, and it is funny. I'm not saying it's not funny, but uh, there is something irresponsible about that too. And so I think there is this polarization there in the country that. Um, you know, commentators both on the left and the right is reflecting. And, you know, much as I dislike it, at least I want to believe that there is something healthy about right. it in that there, this is a, you know, safety valve. It allows, you know, the tensions to, uh, you know, be yeah. released. Yeah. And uh, so they don't, you know, so you're not fighting on the streets because you're fighting on the airwaves. Yeah. And so yeah. there isn't bloodshed. I'd like to believe that. I have my <laughs> moments of doubt. I think, but, I think, I mean, I think that the, the intensity of the debates that we're having in this country are, are being reflected in that, that range of commentary. And so the, the, in the margins, we're going out further with people who are more and more sort of steeped in, in blind ideological love right. or hatred of, of, uh, of other citizens, of issues and things like that. And so I think, it, it, again, it's a reflection of what's going on. It's not what's driving it. Um, right. uh, but, but I do worry about I do worry about what it says about all of us and what it does to the sort of future of journalism and commentary uh, when you have when you have this kind of influence, I think uh, as strongly as it as it is. Let's go to the phones here. Uh, and again, if you want to join the conversation, 313-577-1019 is the number. Jason in Clawson, welcome to Detroit today. Hey, how's it going? Hey, how are you? Uh, good. So I just wanted to comment on a point that was made earlier about kind of the market forces being one of the drivers behind ousting Bill O'Reilly. But really, uh, you know, he's been doing this since the 90s. And like you said, they just re-upped his contract prior to the New York Times expose. So without that independent, well, without the media watchdog side of this, 
uh, he'd still have a show right now, and there wouldn't be as much public outrage, and we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Yeah, so, that's a great. I really. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's a great point, Jason, uh, and, and it's something I, I guess I hadn't really thought of. So you just brought it up is the fact that uh, that he's the victim, really, of of the media actually doing doing its job here. I mean, that New York Times story had a lot of stuff in it that I think people, some of it was stuff people had seen before or heard about, but I think seeing it in aggregate that way really, really did him in. Um, right. I mean, yeah, look, but uh, the New York Times exists within the marketplace too, right? I mean, both sides are ch- are checking and balancing each other. Sure. Uh, uh, Bill, o- Bill Clinton, for instance, uh, who brought him down, you know, with the Monica Lewinsky story? It was actually Drudge. You know, it went, it reported on the blue dress, uh, which no the other... Blue dress, the infamous Yeah, blue the dress. infamous blue dress that no other mainstream publication would would touch i mean it didn't want they didn't want to do the story they knew of it but they didn't want to do it and that too is part of the market right where both sides with their vigorous press um are a check on each other yeah. uh, so that i i would i would argue actually sort of goes to my point in fact yeah uh jason thanks very much for the call and injecting that into our conversation uh, let's go to cassandra in detroit Yes. Uh, people who live in glass houses should not undress in the living room. <laughs> That's my comment. Who are you talking about there, Cassandra? I'm talking about Trump and all them swamp rats up there in Washington. <laughs> Have a great day. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that call, Cassandra. Uh, let's go to uh, Umama in uh, Shelby Township. Oh, hi. Um, hi. Yeah, my name is Umama. I'm 19. Uh-huh. Um, my family is all Democrat. We don't watch Fox News. I've only really <laughs> heard of Bill O'Reilly because of the outlandish and rude things that he says. But I just think more than anything, this just shows hypocrisy in our system just because our president has had sexual assault allegations, even rape allegations, and he's been elected. But Bill O'Reilly was outed only because his sponsorship left too. Yeah. So I just think this is just something that everyone should pay close attention to because actions are only made when money is involved. And that is something that really needs to stop because people are being hurt. People have been offended and it's just not fair to the victim. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much uh, for that call. I think I think that's right. And it, it, this, this idea, though, that uh, that she brings up about not watching Fox News. I mean, I think, and that her her family is all pretty uh, pretty liberal. I mean, I think that's increasingly true. Yeah, that we live on one side of the spectrum, and and that that shapes our media consumption as well. And that that also strikes me as as dangerous. I mean, I don't like I don't like Bill O'Reilly. I don't like uh, Sean Hannity. I don't like almost anybody who appears on Fox News as a commentator. Although I I, I give them a lot more credit for their the news gathering that they do, right. and they have, you know, it's a 24-hour station. Right. There's a lot of the day that's filled with just straight-ahead news gathering. Right. Uh, uh, I, I used to appear on on Fox News when I worked in Washington covering the Supreme Court, and I never had a problem with right. the, the, the the shows that that I was on. Um, but but I worry about the the consumption of these things that that the people who are looking at it are looking at it all the time and nothing else and then there's a whole other class of people who never see that and the same with something like msnbc which is far more liberal uh it, it, we we don't 
we don't share information right. with each other. I mean, you know, what bothers me is not that people uh, watch Fox News, right, um, or MSNBC. What bothers me is when they only watch Bill O'Reilly and they only watch Hannity <laughs> right. or they only watch Rachel, Rachel Maddow and... Uh, you know, and, you know, yeah, I suppose, you know, polarization is a problem and uh, and the new media allows us to live in our informational bubbles, which is um, all, you know, which is all somewhat problematic. On the other hand, you know, there is a way that the, you know, the a very robust media has a way of sorting things out. Yeah. I mean, now if you, you know, look at the backlash against uh, so-called fake news, right? I mean, uh, ironically, Trump is the one who put it on the map, right? <laughs> With his attacks on fake news. But now liberals have taken that trope and they have, they too have run with it. And you get something of a sorting out process right. that when it matters, which is to coming, you know, when, when it comes to making policy, you know, you have some sifting and the real facts uh, to some extent are brought to bear on that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with uh, Sheikha Dalmia of the Reason Foundation. We're going to talk about the historical parallels between undocumented workers and fugitive slaves. You're not going to want to miss that conversation. Stay with us on Detroit Today and stay with us on the phones, 313-577-1019. We will be right back. News. Music. Culture. And community. Every day. Every day. Every day. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Sheikha Dalmia, senior analyst with the Reason Foundation, writer for Reason Magazine. She's here helping me wrap up the week's news, as we do every Friday. And uh, this year, we are committed to bringing in folks on Friday who see the world through slightly different lenses than I do. Uh, more conservative guests uh, we have had on Friday's this year than in the past is something I think is pretty important given the deep divisions that were exposed in our country over the last year, over the last presidential campaign, the fact that we can't even talk to each other in a lot of cases, let alone get along and work together on policy initiatives. I think we have to sort of start where we can, start right here on Detroit Today, welcoming in voices uh, that bring a different point of view, something we do pretty regularly on the show anyway, but it's something that we are committed to doing now every Friday, especially when we talk about the news. She and I were talking about Bill O'Reilly exiting Fox News this week under pressure for his outlandish behavior with uh, with uh, some victims of, of his own uh, sexual assault uh, under pressure from advertisers to, to, to get rid of him, as Fox News did. Uh, I want to take one more call on that subject before we move on to something a little different. Dan in Detroit, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, you know, in our household, my wife and I, we sort of, we sort of took on the, uh, the Fox News challenge. Um, <laughs> uh, before, before and after, we, you know, it's sort of the idea that are we missing something? Um, and we really were deliberate about um, um, of tuning in and and I, and I think that, um, 
and I have to say that the, the base is sort of personalities aside. When you look at the the depth of the content and the the deliberateness deliberateness to get to the to the real issue, there's a stark difference. And what it's trou- what's troubling is that the narrative, at least we thought on Fox, was mm-hmm. really just sort of an anti-liberal narrative, 24/7, without a lot of facts. Um, so my question is, where do we go? You know, where do we go <laughs> with the facts? I mean, how how can, how can we have conversations around the facts when I think we have a, a, a really ideologically a really different treatment of you know the real facts and the and the yeah. root of root of these stories? I think that's a really great question, and I think uh, you know I, I think this is something that Sheik and I will disagree on. I, I do think there is a deeper problem. Uh, in sort of right-facing media, uh, ideologically, with with uh, uh, sort of being unmoored from the facts than I see on the left. I mean, I think there are examples on both sides, and there are there are things that drive me up a wall uh, on on both sides. But I think there is a more consistent and perhaps uh, purposeful effort in some cases on the right to. Uh, to obfuscate or or mislead uh, on a lot of things, and and it goes to this sort of uh, Trumpian kind of uh, approach to to facts and and to messaging. Uh, he didn't just sort of uh, appear out of nowhere. Uh, this he is birthed, I think, by this sort of culture that we see <laughs> very strongly on the right. And I, like, as I said, I imagine that, uh, Shika, you may disagree with that. But, well, uh, you know, I sit in the middle, right? I mean, I'm neither of the, of the left nor of the right, so to speak. I'm a libertarian, so I hate you guys equally and I love you guys <laughs> equally. I mean, that's kind of where I'm coming from. But, I mean, I have talked to enough conservatives to know that your statement that you just made Mm -hmm. would be for them an example of a prime liberal bubble, the exact thing that you accuse them of. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they they find, uh, you know, they find much of the mainstream media, I mean, and this is a huge factor in Trump's victory, right? I mean, they find the New York Times to be so biased as to be, you know, beyond the pale. I mean, it really... But not, re- in its, not in its reporting. In its reporting, See, no. In its reporting, I they find it so hugely biased. people to, doubt, to document that. Oh, they, I, I mean, oh, true. look, the media research, uh, the Brent Pozel outfit, that's what it does 24-7 is, uh, you know, document the media bias. I mean, if you, you know, on MSNBC, you know, Rachel Maddow, you can call her factual and she in many ways she is but if you look at Lawrence O'Donnell for instance uh-huh. uh, and I've been on Lawrence's show and I like him I mean and you know it is a certain brand of journalism which is not my style but okay I kind of get it but a lot of what Lawrence O'Donnell says is not really that factual. <laughs> see, I, <laughs> so, I have to admit, you know, I don't that, watch that. Yeah, show, see, so. but you know, we all have our ideological <laughs> blind spots, right? I mean, that's the problem. We have our ideological blind spots. And Stephen, I mean, you do a wonderful job trying to overcome yours. And, uh, you know, the very fact that you have this Friday, you know, forum sure. where you bring opposing views and, you know, you're very respectful towards your opponents. I mean, you are really like different. And even even then most conservatives would think that there is something of a liberal bubble that you live in. Oh, well, so I mean, I, I, I don't, I guess I don't, uh, I wouldn't argue with that. I think, uh, I think we all tend to sort of 
create these spaces where where we exist and and where there is some reinforcement for the things that we think. I mean, look, we were just talking about uh, the whole story with Bill Clinton's sure. sexual exploits, right? I mean, uh, New York Times, the mainstream media, did not cover itself in glory in this the way it went about it. This years ago, though. It's no, I, I understand. But yeah. what I'm saying is sometimes silences speak just as eloquently as that's what you say. That's absolutely true. And so, uh, you know, that's what gets conservatives go. Yeah, I think... That, I, uh, yeah, uh, you know that it's just not equal. I mean, and uh, I think Clinton, the the Clinton example is 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 a sort of time uh, time driven issue. If the same thing were happening right now with the president in the White House, if it had happened with Barack Obama, even. Uh, oh, I, I am not so I sure don't think, about that. I don't think I don't think there would be any hesitation. I mean, <laughs> oh, uh, uh, yeah. in, in terms of reporting that kind of thing, it was this sort of. I feel like it was this turning point where the personal behavior of the president became far more public, right? That look, that, I mean, uh, uh, um, uh, well, you know, Barack Obama was a you know stellar individual in his personal, you know, moral character. I mean, we all that assume no, that's true. We don't. I mean, know, we right? well, it seems like it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, look, something. I mean, conservative media would not have left him alone right. if it weren't right. Sure. I mean, they are. That's the way you know the whole marketplace of ideas and the watchdog role works. But look, I do not think Obamacare's coverage was at all fair. Uh, the mainstream media did not report his multiple, uh, you know, what I would characterize as lies when he sold the program, right? I mean, he kept saying, you can keep your doctor if you want want to. And everybody knew at that time that that was patently absurd, that the kind of program that they were drawing up was not going to allow that to happen. It was going to make it difficult for people to keep their insurance, it, and that was going, going, going to mean you might not right. keep and, your doctor. Or, and the fact that, you know, they were mandating a certain uh, amount of coverage, which was going to cause a lot of employers to drop what they were offering. Sure. You know, I mean, and everybody knew that. All of us who were covering it knew that. But the Washington Post didn't report it. The Ezra Klein's See, of I the would, world didn't report it. The New York Times I would argue that they it. did. I would argue that they did report it. We, we, we will have a fact off on that <laughs> okay. on that issue at some point. But, but I actually want to turn to another subject. Uh, you wrote a piece recently uh, that I thought was pretty provocative in the way that it uh, it compared a current debate we're having over immigration, uh, undocumented workers in this country, to a debate that we had almost two centuries ago over the idea of fugitive slaves. Now, I, I, I think it's always a little dangerous when you – there are two things that, uh, as a writer, I think you're almost never allowed to draw – Analogies to one is Holocaust Hitler, right? Don't idea. don't invoke Hitler. Hitler Nobody yeah. is Hitler. Nothing yeah. was the Holocaust, and and slavery almost occupies the same space where right. it's very different. It's very difficult to to say that something uh, that we see now that's not actual slavery uh, is is like slavery. But here, I thought you made a very strong case that there are some important similarities uh, between. The, the 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 argument we're having over immigration now and the things that were going on with fugitive slave laws right. uh, in the 19th century. Right. And uh, exactly. I mean, look, uh, as the, the obvious difference between slavery and uh, undocumented uh, immigration is that, you know, slaves were being forcibly, you know, forced to work. Uh, and tethered yes. to a master, whereas, uh, you know, undocumented workers come here of their own free will. 
but the similarity is really with the fugitive uh, slave laws, right? Where slaves who wanted to escape their condition uh, and go somewhere where they could be free and improve themselves, there were laws in place in this country that were preventing them from doing so. Uh, and the same thing is happening to undocumented workers. They are fleeing often persecution and often just, you know, economic deprivation. And uh, a whole state machinery is going after them to prevent them from doing so. Yeah. And uh, the logic that is playing out is also extremely similar. I mean, the, you know, the cycle of violence, state violence that both uh, involved is very similar and you see it playing out right now with the whole sanctuary city movement. Yes. So, you know, when the fugitive slave laws were passed, at that time, uh, you know, there were a number of northern states, uh, you know, that were free states. And yet the federal government passed a law saying that slave owners had a right to come and you know, take their slaves away and that's, try to reclaim they uh, reclaim people. their slaves as their property, and uh, and states had to cooperate. Yeah. The states were supposed to cooperate. There was a major st Supreme Court ruling in 1842, Prigg versus Pennsylvania, where the Supreme Court kind of split the difference. And it, you know, it was Pennsylvania was refusing to turn back, you know, the fugitive slaves, and the federal government was asserting its right to do so to enforce the law. Exactly what is going on right now. Yes. and the Supreme Court basically ruled that the federal that states can't stop federal government from enforcing the federal law on the other hand the fe uh, the, the federal government cannot uh, enforce compliance either and that led to the you know, the passage of personal liberty laws in a number of northern states uh -huh. where they basically assumed a stance of non-cooperation with the federal government, right? I mean, they said, if you want to come and get, you know, the fugitive slaves, fine, we will not stop you. But if you want our cooperation, if you want to park these slaves in our jails, if you want our constables to in, uh, assist you, we are not going to We're do We're not so. going to do that. And that is exactly what's going on with the Sanctuary City yeah. movement. Well, and, right? that, and that's exactly what's going on with the Sanctuary City movement. This is also part of what uh, uh, inspires in the 19th century the the construction, uh, so to speak, of the Underground Railroad, Railway, right? right? right. Uh, this this idea of, of uh, eluding uh, uh, folks from the South who were trying to come north right. to, to reclaim their slaves. There were also cities and cities right here in Michigan right. uh, that, that openly defied uh, right. uh, those fugitive slave laws and said, look, we're going to essentially be sanctuary cities for for escaped slaves. So, there, I mean, it is a very strong I mean, parallel. and that's exactly what's happening right now. Four states have already declared themselves as sanctuary states, right? I mean, these are states. And then there are about nine or ten other states in my counting which are kind of de facto sanctuary states. Uh, and then you have about 300 or so municipalities that have declared themselves sanctuary cities. You know, yeah. cities. Uh, now, there is also a counter movement Right. I mean, there in, in Texas, there is an effort afoot to ban sanctuary municipalities. And yes. I think here in Michigan as well, They're some Republicans are there that. talking about yes. that. Uh, you know, but the 
problem for uh, such efforts to ban sanctuary cities and municipalities is that it's not just local governments that are, you know, stepping forward. Uh, just as during the time of slavery, a lot of private citizens and churches and, uh, you know, religious organizations are also stepping up to are the pushing task. pushing back, sure. Uh, and they're pushing back. And one of the huge untold stories actually is we, you know, we hear about a lot of evangelicals who are opposed to undocumented workers, but there is a huge evangelical movement that, uh, you know, is motivated out of Christian charity to protect yes. um undocumented workers. And uh, in Texas, uh, the St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church has actually openly declared itself a sanctuary church. This basically defies the authorities to come to the church yes. and pull, and people, pull out, people out. And the amount of violence that involves, you know, open violence that involves is what of sort of the Achilles heels of this, you know, the movement of, uh, you know, enforcement that uh, is uh, present yeah. over here that you saw exactly the same thing unfold during slavery. During slavery, right. And of course, that culminates in, uh, you know, a splitting of the union for right. for a, a small period of time and a war to, to sort of sew it back together. I guess my fear, I, I don't fear that we're in exactly the same situation now, but I do fear that, that pushing this issue the way the president is and being right. as aggressive as he is, is tearing at that notion of this being one country. I mean, it's very right. hard to imagine that if you are welcoming of the idea of, of people who maybe came here uh, illegally trying to find a legal path to, to exist in this country, that it's hard to imagine being in the same country with people who just want to send them away. Right. And, uh, you know, as you said, it's not quite analogous to slavery because the scale is very different, yes. right? I mean, there are just 11 million undocumented workers. After all, there were many, many more slaves at right. the time. Uh, but in this way, there there is a parallel in that, you know, you so you have sanctuary cities on one hand. On the other hand, you have what, you know, what are 287G cities uh, or municipalities that are voluntarily signing up with the federal government to enforce, go round, uh, up, to, people. To go round up people, they are willing to deputize, you know, their forces uh, in order to help the federal government. And so you have this two tracks right now yes. moving simultaneously of sanctuary cities and these, uh, you know, anti-sanctuary cities. And we are not moving towards a civil war, but we are moving towards some kind of a civil clash yeah. if this president if insists don't. on doing what he is doing. Yeah. I mean, we and as much blame as I would place in the lap of this president for behaving the way he is now, I'd also put a lot of blame on Barack Obama yes. for not having taken advantage of the situation he had when he was first elected when he really could have led a national conversation on this. about this and gotten something passed. You know, I this is you 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 have guests who disagree with you but on this I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. I think uh, uh Obama, you know, he actually did deport uh you know, Poor he was the deporter. He too, de yeah. deported 2.5 million people. Now, to be fair to him, um, he Congress actually authorized that he has to appropriated funds for the deportation of 450,000 yes. uh, people every year. Uh, it required that they fill 34,000 detention beds every day. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was ridiculous. And uh, so Barack Obama's hands were somewhat tied 
in that respect. Sure. The only way he could have, uh, you know, open these shackles were if he had actually pushed immigration if reform. If he had pushed uh, and he earlier. Did. He right. had pushed earlier, used up some political yeah. capital, but he was very cynical. I mean, he wanted to keep the issue alive, to keep winning sort of midterm sure, elections, sure. and he never took care yeah, of it. Yeah, uh, he, he had an opportunity and, and he blew it. Uh, okay, Sheikha Dahmia, senior analyst with the Reason Foundation, writer for Reason Magazine, as always. Thanks for being here on Detroit today. Thanks for having me, yes, Steve. we will talk to you soon. All right, up next, we're going to talk with author Derek Palacio about his book, The Mortifications, as well as next week's Midwest Literary Walk, which will feature his work. Stay with us on Detroit Today. <laughs> 